Welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. That's right, taking care of business in all ways I can possibly get my fingers involved in. You know, for so many years doing radio first, uh, I took myself pretty seriously. And that has changed quite a lot over the years, I'm here to tell you. this The media is a ginormous landfill. And there are so many outlets that people have choices to listen to, connect with, watch, whatever, get their information from. And when I first started in the early years, you know, I was pretty well convinced that I had the anointing and I would be heading in a direction where, you know, and I'm using this as a numbers perspective, not so much as a talent perspective, the Rush Limbaugh's and at the time Howard Stern was on FM and, you know, and, and these people who had millions and millions of listeners for a very long period of time. That never happened. I mean, it happened a little bit. When I was on the Oprah Radio uh, Network back in 06 to 10, I did a, a show there and we had three or four million people listening, which is really, really satisfying and interesting and pat on the back and we did a good job and got to a certain point. And now with the plethora of outlets, it gets more and more difficult to maintain audiences and to attract audiences and things like that. And in all of this time that I've been broadcasting, whether it was radio and now the podcasting or other things that I do, uh, the talks that I've given, the books that I write, they all have one thing behind it. It is to up the game, if at all possible, for people, myself included. Listen, when I sit down to do this show every Saturday, it is like a resurrection of sorts for me. You know, I, I do whatever I can to stay out of the headlines and maintain my lifelines. It's, it's vitally important. The older I get, the more important that gets. But there are times stuff leaks through and I and it catches me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We're still putting up with this shit. So I think that's one of the big ahas over the time I've been behind microphones in so many different places. I lost count of the places that I actually sat in for a few weeks on the Martha Stewart channel. Can you believe that? Okay, kids, we're going to make this brick into a doily and paint it. I met Martha, very nice lady. I wasn't a real good fit, fit for the channel. But that's okay. Can you imagine? I think that I had a co-host, a rotating co-host. I was the anchor. It was a week or two in New York. I can't recall how long. I stayed out there with my good friend, Jean Chatsky, who I worked with at the Oprah Radio Channel. She was the NBC Today Show money maven for decades. And what a great human being. So I, I stayed with her and her husband. And I would take the train in to New York. And I'm not a huge fan of the Big Apple, here to tell you. In any, mostly because the Cubs lost to them in 1969. But that's another show. Uh, but, but yeah, it was we had these rotating co-hosts and one lady was like the wine and cheese person. And then there was like the curtain lady. And my job was to keep the shows moving because they're not used to doing radio. So many and varied microphones have I been behind. I recall overnight stuff on WKMOX in St. Louis, but I did it from the WGN studios in Chicago. Shh, don't tell anybody. A lot of that goes on. And it was overnights from, this was 11 to 5 a.m. Or, yeah, it was like 11 to 5 a.m. And 
I it was my first indoctrination to how many people listen to radio overnight. You know, I mean, I'm not up at that time, but there is a whole subculture of humans who love that radio, and, and it's a big deal, and it's it's quite a, a important part of broadcasting. And it was really funny because uh, here I am in WGN. Now this is when they were on Michigan Avenue in the fishbowl, we called it, right on Michigan Avenue Tribune Tower, which is now condos. And I got there probably 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock, something like that for 11 a.m. start. And I'm like, well, what studio am I doing in it? Because it'd be pretty cool to be in the fishbowl at night. I was there during the day doing shows, but it'd be kind of cool at night to do it. Oh, no, no, no. You're going to be in John Williams's uh, auxiliary studio. So John Williams is a, is a uh, highly respected talk show host on WGN currently, and he was at the time, a good guy. And it was like a closet. I'm thinking, well, John Williams has got his own auxiliary studio. This is fantastic. It was a closet. So I took my shoes off and my socks off, and I shoved myself into this closet. And I think I did it for three weeks overnight. You know, it was a good paying gig, and they needed somebody to do it. It's got to be a solid guy and all that. And uh, so anyway, listen, I've cut my my chops and in, in, uh made my bones on radio over the years in a lot of different places. But never have I been so um, appreciated, I think is the word, than in Trinidad. Yeah, Trinidad and Tobago, south of the equator, right off the coast of South America. And it all started just when I was leaving Oprah Radio back in 0910, somewhere there. I was asked to talk in Miami. My book had just come out, Every Moment Matters, so it would have been 2010. And the woman who owned the radio station, Kiran Maharaj, still owns the stations, uh, had me come down and do a talk. And, and she had a woman at the time, and I don't know whatever happened to her, named Barb. I don't remember Barb's last name, but I do remember this, that Barb somehow became part of Oprah's Best Life Challenge or something. This is going back 12 years. And she wanted to be on radio. She had zero experience. Now, I have a soft spot for people who want to try and do radio, get on and be a broadcaster and never done it. I started that way. So we had her come over to the Oprah studios and I gave, ran her through some stuff and all these kind of things. And she just lit up like a Christmas tree. She also said she'd quit smoking and she did. And Bob Green, who was Oprah's trainer at the time, I'm not sure what he's up to these days. He worked with her. So there was all these things going to help people up their game, live their best life. And she was able to call herself through an agreement or consent or something, permission, Best Life Barb. What a great way to go through radio life. So Best Life Barb found herself in this Miami station and owned by Kieran. And one thing led to another, and I went down there and did a talk about the book and radio and things like that. It got bigger and bigger. And finally, she asked me to come to Trinidad. And I did, and I spoke for, for the journalists there in Trinidad but I also spoke at a couple of corporations and I was there for about four or five days. And it was just a delightful uh, experience. I was there three times. It's not a place I'd ever thought growing up on the northwest side of Chicago. Gee, I want to go to Trinidad, but it's it was fantastic and the people were great. And I've stayed in touch with them all these years. So last week, uh, I, asked, I was asked to speak to journalists in the Caribbean. Now, it would have been nice if they'd have flown Johnny down there. I could put some shorts on, flip-flop, and a big hat. But it was all through the magic of this Zoom stuff that we have, this technology. So here I was ensconced in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. Still didn't have any shoes on, which was good. You know, by the way, I try not to wear shoes between like April and eh, November 1st. I don't know what it is. It's just like the, being outside, uh, it's hard for me to... I, 
I go to events and things. I got to put shoes on, but I'm not real happy about it. I'd be, and I'm not a beach guy per se, but I just like being outside without shoes on. I don't know where that I get that, but I was able to do this training from my studio without shoes on. So that's not a bad deal. When I did the overnight thing in St. Louis, I was paddling around WGM with no shoes on. I had socks on because I'm not an idiot, but I had no shoes on. I recall that clearly. Anyway, I digress. Last Thursday, I, I flipped on the Zoom and here are all these faces, a few hundred people from the Caribbean, uh, all over the place. And my job was to talk about the art of the interview. Due to the fact that I've done produced, hosted, uh, well over 25,500 some odd shows and have spoken to half as many people, 12, 14,000 guests of all backgrounds, name and note, famous, infamous, everyday people, you name it. And it just accumulated that way. It's just, it's, it's just part of my career. So over two decades plus, you stick around long enough, people think that you know what you're talking about and they, they like to connect with that. So it was a really interesting dialogue. The first part was a monologue. So the first 25 minutes or 30 minutes was my giving them the pointers and tips and things that I've learned over so many years behind a microphone and talking with people and connecting with people. And it's also good for me to remind myself of these things. And the number one thing was that fundamentals aren't fun, but you got to do them. So preparation is important and discipline is important and knowing who you're talking to is important and all the background stuff that goes with that. When I was on the air, five days a week, three hours a day, there was a lot of prep. So even though I didn't hit the air till three o'clock in the afternoon, I started working, of course, at night, the night before and nine o'clock in the morning, I'd be in my office. And so it's all about prep. So when you get that time on the air, like we do here, um, you're ready to go. This is a very different deal, by the way, kids. I don't have any notes. I got no prep. I'm just throwing it out there. And I like that opportunity to do that. When I do sit in, on occasion, uh, on radio stations these days, there is a little bit more preparation that goes to it. But this is free form for me. I got no shoes on. The windows are open. I'm feeling pretty good. So we're just going to wing it. And one of the things that came up in, the, in this dialogue was, what is the responsibility of the broadcasting person? What is their responsibility? And I thought about it for a second. I go back to what the late great Fred Rogers said, Mr. Rogers, in terms of television, so he would be broadcasting, but it's a, just a different medium. He said the space between him and the viewer was sacred. He took it as a sacred space. And I adopted that as well and said the space between my microphone and somebody's ears is a sp sacred space. And I, I treat it as such. And the follow-up question is, well, if that's true, why are there so many you know, lowlifes that have radio channels that seem to do so well and radio stations and that back them and, and shows that, that make all this money. And all I know is that they've tapped into a demographic that likes that stuff. And I, all I can do is say that, that it's a, compared to most people, it is a small demographic. I'm not going to get into the details of, of the, the recent pseudo quote fingers talk host who, uh, you know, the Sandy Hook thing was, was, a, was a fake. And then he had to go to court. He's getting, you know, losing millions of dollars and he had to recount himself and recant himself and all that kind of stuff. So it's karmically coming back to get you no matter what you're doing. So I like to think, well, I don't have millions of people listening like I once did on Oprah Radio or even back when I was on CBS. Uh, I'd rather be talking to people who are somewhat intelligent, not dragging their knuckles all the time, not drinking their own urine every other day, 
believe in anything that comes out of somebody's mouth without checking it just to feed the narrative. I think we're better than that, but there are people that are not. And over the years, you, I realized that. I, I, I told them the story about this guy who every Friday night when I was on the air in, in Michigan, every Friday at 6.05, 6 o'clock and 5 after, I would get an email. And this listener would, would send me Bible scripture. And it was all about how I was leading people across the burning lake to hell. And I mean, this just went on for a year, every single Friday. And in the beginning, I just kind of sloughed it off and deleted it. And then it got, you know, and after a while I started being smarmy and, you know, kicking back. And then after a while I just stopped, I just didn't even open them anymore. So this went on for a year. And when I came up to take a hiatus, a break from radio, I had just donated a kidney to my daughter. This would have been 2002. At the end of 2002, I was like, I'm out of gas. Uh, I need to take a break. I had just signed a contract to do uh, broadcasting syndicated out west in 85 markets. And I had to, had to you know, get out of that contract. I just had the gas in me. You donate a body part. Uh, it takes a little bit out of you. And so anyway, I needed to take a break. And made my pitch. And I said, folks, I'm taking a break. I'm not sure when I'm coming back on the air. You know, And, and I had an agreement with the station. They're going to give me time off. And I did not work for them. We split the revenue that came in from the uh, from the sponsorships and like that. So they're going to lose money and I'm losing money, but I need to take a break. And about 6.30 that night, I'm kind of sitting there just letting it all settle in in my office. I'm the only one there. Uh, it was a Friday and it was, I believe it would have been New Year's Eve because I, I cut the cord on the radio thing at New Year's Eve 02. So the building's basically empty. Everybody's gone home. It's a be- it was a beautiful building in downtown Escanaba, Michigan, the bustling metropolis of Escanaba, Michigan. And there's a knock on the door, and I answer it. There's a guy standing there. He's got a bunch of you know pins on and stuff and all kind of things. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I, cut- I think he's in the wrong office. And I said, well, the building's mostly closed. Everybody's gone home. He goes, you're John St. Augustine, right? I said, yes, I am. He says, I owe you an apology. Okay, do I know you? And he says, I'm the guy that's been sending you those emails every Friday. And I thought to myself, what, and I mean, I, it, you don't know me an apology. I just don't even read them anymore. And he said, no, it's taken me about a year to really start to understand what you're talking about. Please don't go off the air. I'm just starting to understand. Well, school's out kid. Sorry. You know, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you're saying this and I'm glad you're picking up on some things. And I'm glad you're starting to think for yourself and all that goes along with that, but I'm not going to go back on the air at this point. But it illustrated to me that over time, even though this person had a serious firewall, a religious firewall, whichever, I don't recall what his particular thing was, that was his um, defense mechanism. So everything that came to him in his life had to run through that defense mechanism, that screen, right? It had to get through that. And so that's how he saw the world. Everything was through that. So anything that did not line up with that his immediate bark back was scripture. And I was, I had, I have no idea who this guy was. I didn't know how long he listened, when he listened, but it also illustrates that people, people that don't like you will listen just to reaffirm the point that they don't like you. It's pretty interesting. So when I think of all that's going on with this, and I mentioned that story to these journalists, I said, you never know who's listening because conversely, there's the opposite. I can't tell you how many times I've had people send me notes write in a mail, you know, a regular letter, email, text message, Facebook message saying what you said in this particular show, what you and your guests talk about in the show, all that went into the show helped me. 
and here's the circumstances I'm in, which I would have no idea of knowing that. So I go in, much like when I go driving. See, when I get in the car, I figure everybody else but me has failed their driver's test. I figure everybody else is out drunk driving. I figure everybody else is pissed off at their, you know, fill in the blank person, and they're all in a hurry. And so I don't expect people to drive very well. That way it keeps me from going, you know, over the top when they don't drive really well, which is kind of what I expect. It's the same thing that goes along with the, the radio thing. Right now, I have zero idea who's listening and where. None. Yeah, I have no clue what the circumstances are in your life, what you're up against, what's going on, what's working, what isn't. If your life is going well, if it's a shit box. I mean, I, no way to know any of that. My only job doing this over the last 25 years is to explain expect and assume that it's challenging and difficult. And if there's something I can do, even in the moment, to remind you that this too shall pass, that there is, you know, more ahead than behind you that that is good. You got to look for that stuff. Keep your head up. Don't drink your own urine like these other people. Doesn't make it any easier. Then that's my job. And it's taken 25 years kind of to get to that point. That question also came up. It's like, you know, along with the responsibility thing, what is your role in this? Why do you keep doing this? And that, that's a much bigger question and answer than we have time for here. But the short version is this is kind of like my salvation on some level. Because if I didn't resurrect this part of myself, when I do this show, the better part of myself, I would easily slide in to the chorus of the uh-oh squad, that everything's gone to shit, everything's bad, everybody hates each other, the world's ending. I- I'm not going to get into that. Because it comes to nothing. The second half, so let me just finish up this first half because I don't want to push this too much today, but it's my show. So bear with me. <laughs> so we were finishing up the, uh, the training and to see these people who I have never met before and most likely will never meet again, you know, all on a zoom on my, my computer heartened me a great deal because they were thinking along the lines of what can I do to make this safe sacred space for the listeners, the viewers, the people they write for. They're all broadcast journalists to some degree. And that's good because they don't usually get the headlines. You know who gets the headlines? The lowlifes that say that kids that were killed in Sandy Hook was a setup and it's a, it's never happened. And they make money off people listening to that shit. That's the lower end of the scale. The higher end of the scale, they don't get the headlines. That other stuff does. And that's okay. But as I always say, What they're doing is something more important than the headlines. They're creating lifelines because that's what life is about is lifelines, not headlines. The headlines will come and go every 30 seconds, if not more. Lifelines are something you have to cultivate and keep moving forward on. And it can often be difficult in the face of loss and tragedy. So it was a great experience. Uh, Hopefully next time they fly me down. I was down there a couple, like I said, it is a glorious place. It reminded me a little bit of Jurassic Park because Trinidad is highly developed and, you know, and it's a bustling city and it's, it's a great country, that all, this, all that's going on in there. Tobago, I only flew over it and saw it from the other island. And I'm thinking, there's a stegosaurus over there somewhere. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. We're below the equator. This is like Lost World over here, this other one. But uh, had a great time. I have great friends down there. Just incredible experience and so heartened and proud to support them in what they're doing, the Media Institute of the Caribbean. That kind of goes into the next piece for me. And I'm not sure how to tie them both together. We'll see if it happens. It might, it might not. Being in the position of the media and 25 years. So that's, 
I don't know how many election cycles and political cycles and things we've gone through and I've gone through. I noticed early on that the only people that really make money and make out in this political process are the people in radio and television and print where there's ads bought. So all the money that's generated from these campaigns is to simply buy ads and airtime and space to tell the world what a shitbird your opponent is. Not what you're going to do, but what they're not going to do. It's just the old bait and switch. It's the old, which, you know, you got three red solo cups and which one's the nut underneath. Well, I think nuts are underneath all of them, but that's what it's all about. And I'm not going to change that system. Somewhere there's a consultant making serious coin. They also get that money. Telling people, candidates, incumbents, and those running for office, this is what you do. You simply keep pointing out what a jerk your opponent is. You never have to say what you're going to do. Because keeping, keeping it off guard saying, here's the danger if they get in office. So to illustrate this point, I thought this was really interesting because we've been out of the cycle for a couple years now and we're going back into it. So like shit's going to hit the fan. When the shit hits the fan, try to stay behind the fan. It's a whole lot easier. So I got an email and I'm going to use the names. You know what? I'm not going to use the names because it really doesn't matter. But I'm going to use some sort of metaphorical pieces so you can at least connect with what I'm saying. I got an email from the son of a former president with the same name, Junior. And it says, friend, I have some bad news. My friend and conservative outsider, Dr. Mehmet Oz is losing, and losing is in capital letters. And this whole sentence is in yellow highlighter. My friend and conservative outsider, Dr. Mehmet Oz is losing against socialist John Fetterman in the Pennsylvania state race. Goes on to say that Fetterman is soft on crime, anti-American energy, and what's more inflation-induced spending. We need Dr. Oz in the Senate, and we must come together to make that happen. And just like my father, no pun intended, I put that part in. Dr. Oz has America's best interest at heart. There's a big red block, so you could click it, support Dr. Oz. Then it goes on to say, Dr. Oz is losing big time. And if he doesn't have the grassroots support behind him, he has no shot at all. I'm teaming up with Dr. Oz, and we'll decide to match 300% all donations until midnight. Uh huh. If you want to make an impact, now's your chance. Yes, triple my donation. $100 means $300. For those of you who can't count, $50 means $150, and $25 is $75, or triple anything. This seat is vital to us taking back our Senate majority. You don't want to sit back and wish you'd stepped up when Chuck Schumer is still in control, do you? Your donation today gives Dr. Oz the resources he needs to win this race and beat Fetterman in November. Thank you, and God bless. DJT Jr. So let me just dissect this one and get to the next email. As someone who writes media copy to some greater or lesser degree over the years to get people to get involved in consumer products, this is one of the worst emails I've ever seen. Dr. Oz is losing big time. He doesn't have the grassroots to support him. He has no shot. But I've teamed up with him and your money can make the difference. So you're first admitting he's a loser, and then you're asking me to give you money. And if you don't give money, somehow it's your fault. <laughs> so there's that one. Let's go to the next one, shall we, kids? Class isn't over yet. This is on the other side of the aisle. This is from a Democrat who is in uh, Illinois. 
and it says, I could lose big time. I asked on Friday. I asked on Sunday. I asked yesterday. And now I'm asking you again. I'm begging you and pleading because that's how important this midnight deadline is. I need to pull back the curtain and explain where things stand. First, projections revealed that after redistricting, Republicans could win my seat. Then, national Republicans added me to their official target list and attacked me with vicious lies. And now, I've learned that Republicans have amassed millions, you know, from the other email, to attack people like me and flip this seat red. John, I refuse to be the tipping point that hands the Republicans a one-seat majority in the Congress. I know I've already emailed you this week, like every day. But if we fail to hit our midnight goal, I could lose my race and control of the House for years to come. If we want to save the House, falling short is not an option. My race and control of the entire House hinges on what we do in the next eight hours. Remember, the election's in November. I need 324 more emergency gifts. Will you rush $14 now? Now it goes on to explain like the other one did. Trump's choice for Illinois governor just won his primary. He'll turn out scores of far-right conservatives across my district, and my opponent is a millionaire who can write big checks to his campaign to destroy my chances. I need to raise money to fight back and simply say, it can't wait until tomorrow. I'm asking for your help. I'm pleading for it. I'm begging for it before midnight. Please, John, we can't let this be the race that costs Democrats our control. Will you pitch in $14 in the next eight hours to stop? This is starting to sound like televangelists. Same exact formatic outline, except he's not tripling the donations. I keep all of this stuff. It's a reminder to me of the fodder that people have to deal with and dig through. Every one of these desperately need your help, really hard email to write. He's got his wife writing emails for him. And finally, to wrap all of this up, and in full disclosure, I know Mehmet Oz. I work with him from 2006 to 10. I was the executive producer of his show on Oprah Radio, spent a lot of time together. But I got an email from him last night. I thought, well, that's interesting. What interesting timing. Well, it's not really from Mehmet, but it's from uh, buildingourmovement.com. And there's a nice picture of Mehmet sitting there like he is on TV. And it goes on to talk about his life and how he grew up and his parents and his wife, Lisa, who's a delightful human being and all this, this whole thing. I was there for a lot of this and I understand a lot of it and I see it. And then it went on and on all the way to the bottom. Uh, I hope you make a donation today and fight this fight with me. So all of this information comes to us and we're supposed to sift through it. And going back to the guy with the religious thing where his immediate default position was send scripture, my immediate default position is no. And I don't think the world's coming to an end if you don't win. Because when you look through history, our history, this is exactly how it's been every two to four years. It's always the same, keeping people fearful and that the only way they can be delivered from their fear is by X, Y, and Z in certain political positions. And who funds it? We do. We fund our own fear. Every time, in my opinion, observation, experience, we send money to these things, they crank out more of the same shit. There's no solutions in here. In either of those emails that I read, there was nothing about a solution. It was all fear-based. On the Republican side, if you don't do this, the Democrat will win and it'll be the end of the world. On a Democratic side, if you don't do this, the Republican will win and it's the end of the world. How do you think we get anywhere? We don't because of shit like this. So won't be long. It won't be long before the TV ads start. That's when I turn the sound off or walk out of the room. And I don't know where the 
research is that shows that these things are effective. I'd really like to see, because listen, if the guy in, in Illinois was sending me emails saying, this is what I've accomplished the last four years and I'd like to continue this with no mention of this, oh my God, the world's ending, he might have my attention. But he's pleading me and begging me, like what, some guy on the street corner at the off-ramp at the Eisenhower? Not impressed, not in messaging. And the opposite is, I don't know how I got on the other email, but Dr. Oz is running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. I don't live there. I can't vote there. I got nothing to do with that, as we say downtown. I got nothing to do with that. So it's so, this is, but all of this stuff runs down our central nervous systems. We're supposed to make decisions based on this stuff. So as I get ready to kind of push this into a, a funnel here to wrap it up, I go back to the responsibility thing. What is our responsibility in all of this? How we communicate, how we treat each other, how we connect with each other, how we converse with each other. And I take the word responsibility and I flip it inside out. And what is our ability to respond? And if you just base it off this stuff, it's zero. It's zero. If you really think in your head that by sending $12 by midnight somehow saves this guy's campaign or that if you somehow say, send X amount of dollars to Dr. Oz and he triples it, you've ensured that he's going into the Senate. I can't help you. You got to think for yourself. This goes back to everything I've been doing for 25 years. It reminds me of, you know, trying to talk, talk like that guy on, comes to mind again that showed up at the office. A whole year, he sent me shitty, nasty, rotten emails every Friday. And then he walks in and says, I'm sorry. I, I don't even know what I was thinking. I'm starting to understand how important it is to think for yourself. So maybe the takeaway from this 29-minute rant is to think for yourself, to do your own diligence, to not buy into this stuff. I This stuff doesn't bother me on the level that I need, feel like I need to take action on. I save this because I find it just fascinating. I'm probably missing the boat. Actually, they probably wouldn't hire me to write anything like this because I couldn't write this crap. I couldn't write this crap. Stand on your record. Say what you're going to do. It, I mean, but that's American politics. It's a cesspool. And I think that's why there's such low vert, voter turnout. You know, how you present yourself. So while there is a spectacle there, it's not always a good one. So in the final analysis in this, how I'm attempting to pull this together, talking to these journalists in the Caribbean about the responsibility of getting the word out and reminding people of what's good in the world and, you know, their stories and things like that and how you tell that, and how you have a conversation with someone who may be diametrically opposed to things as you are. I use the example of Pat Buchanan, who ran for president. He was on Richard Nixon's staff. And Pat Buchanan and I have zero things in common on a lot of levels. And many years ago, he was a guest on my show. He wrote a book. And he's he was I, I watched his interviews before he did mine. Pissed off all the time, angry, you know, combatant and ready to fight. And I thought, if I go at it this way, we're never going to get anywhere to get anything done about anything that's important, to have any kind of dialogue. And so when I read his book, I found a chapter in the beginning where he talked about how him and his buddies were teenagers and they were running around drinking beer and in their, his dad's car and he got busted on it. And all. It, was a, you know, it was a thing. And not one of the other interviewers on the shows, even Larry King, it even brought that up. They just got right to the red meat. Let's argue. It's all good. If we argue, it appears like we're fighting and fighting means you got to have a winner. I tell my kids especially, but people all the time, the best way to win the tug of war is put the fricking rope down. The other person goes flying. Pretty cool. So 
Pat Buchanan gets on, and I could tell just by, and, and we're off air talking, Mr. Buchanan, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, okay, let's get to it. So we start out, we talk a couple of niceties and introduced him and stuff like that. I said, so I got to ask you the big question. I could hear him shuffling like he's ready to fight. And I said, tell me about the story about you riding around with your buddies drinking beer in your dad's car. What happened there? And he cracked up. For the next 45 minutes, we were best buddies. Doesn't mean we agreed on anything, but we can converse. And the show was fantastic. Somewhere I have a tape. I'd have to go find it. And while we may have been diametrically opposed to how to get to where he thought we needed to be as a country as opposed to how I thought it. We had some common ground there because I know it's like to drive around, drink beer at my buddies and get caught. So we had something there, at least to have that conversation. Not all conversation is about victory over someone or something. It should be about progress towards something. And that doesn't happen if you don't have connection. So whether you're in a position that I am where there's a microphone in front of you for X amount of years or you're just doing it in your own life, it's something to remember that the tug of war, no one ever really wins. It's just an ongoing game. Every two to four years, we start up again because I guess we like it. And that there's a responsibility and that you have an ability to respond in interacting with people, even the ones you can't get along with on any other level, that there's a possibility of doing that. And when that happens, I'm reminded of Wayne Dyer, my, my friend, the late, great Wayne Dyer, who said, the way people treat you is their karma. The way you respond is yours. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Adios.